I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We will, from time to time, be in Ephesians, uh, which is appropriate because Ephesians has been called the Magna Carta of the church. Uh, It is a great letter uh, to look at by Paul to consider the uh, teaching of the church and and all of the blessings that God has given the church. But we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. This is Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we come once again into your presence through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we are a needy people. We are a humbled people. We are a broken people. We are a people in need of rest and strength. We are people who need revival and renewal. And we're often reluctant to admit just how needy we are. And so, Father, we would humble ourselves this morning before you and ask for your help, your help to heal us, your help to restore us, your help to give us vision. Father, we pray that as we are gathered here, your spirit might move in our midst. And even here today, the seeds of new life and growth and rebirth might be planted in our hearts and in our imaginations, looking for you to work, looking for you to act waiting upon you to move, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Little story. Many years ago, there was a woman who was very concerned about her teenage son. Now, just for those of you who are wondering, it wasn't my mother, so I'm just going to put it out there right, right off the bat, okay? But there is a connection to me. And this woman was very concerned because her son was a Christian trying to live a Christian life in a, in a middle school and he had no friends and there were very few people at the chapel and she was very concerned about his, his spiritual welfare. And so she got together with a group, a small group of other women, two or three. And they began to pray. And they kept praying. And they kept asking God to work in this young man's life. Little did I know about those prayers because I ended up being part of the answer to that prayer. And I was a young man who was not particularly spiritually minded, was not particularly good 
In fact, I heard later on from my youth leaders that they kind of dreaded when I was coming into youth group. Not because I was particularly bad. I just was like an unknown, I guess. But what I did not know and what I did not realize, and even now as I look back on it historically, that my life and the life of my friend and the life of so many other of my peers were actually caught up in the wave of the spirits moving. And that there was a revival coming. And that revival would, would hit our assembly hard. Where one year before my family decided to go to Tenafly, the average age was over 50. There were very few families in the church. And they didn't want to go there. But they circled back a year later, and they felt that the spirit had changed there, not so much anything else. And what started out as a little youth group that met on Friday night with like a half a dozen or a dozen young people grew to a Friday night youth group of 50 people, where the one of the leaders actually remodeled his home, took down walls to accommodate the number of young people who were gathering. And their, their gathering began to impact other assemblies, and it began to get, impact other communities. And evangelism were beginning, was beginning to take place, and young people were bringing their friends from school to youth group, and they were getting saved, really saved. And the Holy Spirit was moving, and I can tell you that in my generation that went through this revival— They became elders, they became deacons, they became missionaries, the wives of elders. Like, I can go through my peer group and I can look across the horizon. And to this day, many of them are continuing to make an impact for the kingdom of God. But it started when a couple of women began praying. One of the things that I believe is plaguing many of the gatherings of God's people is a sense of powerlessness. We really don't know how to make an impact on our communities. We really don't know even how to make an impact on one another. We're not even sure what we should be doing as churches anymore. Some of the old things that we used to do that were successful 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago don't seem to have the same impact that they did back then. The community has changed, but more so the culture has changed. And we are waiting for some kind of new thing to come along and give us that thing, that program, that ministry, that that new idea that will just kind of like make us relevant again as a community of God's people. And this ability to, this, this sense of powerlessness is, is draining the life out of, out of many assemblies. And, and others leave and try to find someplace else where there may seem to be more power or there may be seem to be better programs. But the reality is, is that in the communities of God's people, there's a sense of powerlessness. Like, how are we going to make a difference? Where do we make a difference? Where will it come from? But when we look at what power is, we start to think about what power is, 
we think about what the definition of power is. And power is an interesting word, right? It's the ability to do something, to produce something, to produce an effect. But what strikes me about my thoughts about power is that a lot of times we think about power. I've thought about power. Let me make it personal. The way I thought about power is an energy to be active. And so the more active I am, obviously, the more power I have. But but if you step back and you start to think about that, right, there's something missing in that understanding. Just being busy doesn't mean that there's really power that's at work. There's a certain level of power that's at work. But the reality is that power is in the effect. That power is in the effect. It's in the influence. It's in the efficacy. And Paul here is telling the Ephesians, he's saying to them, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I want you to know something. I want your eyes open. I want your heart enlightened. You need to get this. You need to grasp this. You need to hold on to this. You need to know what is the hope of his calling. That what he is calling you to is rich with hope. That what he is calling you to become, what he's calling you to do is rich in hope. And more than that, it is glorious. It is full of richness and abundance. And it's, and you're part of that. He sees you as his inheritance and he takes pleasure in that. And there's a richness in this. And I want you to understand the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Not just the exceeding greatness of his power in general. Now, we could talk about God's power in general, right? We could talk about the power of creation. I mean, I can spend like hours just losing myself in the thoughts about how vast this universe is. That how vast this universe is that we can just lose ourselves when we start to think about the, the limitless, it seems, number of stars in our galaxy. Like they just keep expanding the number. They just keep guessing more. Hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. And then to imagine that our galaxy is really like a speck amongst a sea of galaxies. Like it just blows your mind. And what does the Bible say? He spoke and it was. Talk about power. We can think about the power that was displayed in the incarnation. When the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The power of conception. The power of God pouring himself in all of his fullness into the body of Jesus. And you think about the power that Jesus displayed in all of the miracles he performed when he was here. And and as it says here, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him throughout the whole countryside, and the whole Gospels are just filled with him demonstrating that power, healing the sick, 
raising the dead, making blind eyes see, making deaf people hear, dealing with demons. And he just was moving in power. And then, of course, as Paul would remind us, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. God's power. God's power in creation, in the incarnation, in the life of Jesus, in his resurrection. And Paul is saying, you know that power? It's toward you. It's toward you. It's God's power is moving in your direction. We don't live that way, do we? We often feel like we we have barely enough strength to get up in the morning, right? Don't talk to me until my third cup of coffee, please. But there is something here for us. Peter tells us that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So in other words, this Christian life that I'm supposed to live, this this struggle that I'm engaged in with the world, the flesh, the devil, this constant battle I have with temptation, this desire that's often frustrated to be more like Jesus. God has already given me what I need. As Paul would say to Timothy, he's not given us a spirit of fear. Oh, but we are so afraid. I'm so afraid. I open up the app and I look at the news and it makes me afraid. Anybody feel afraid when they read the news or hear the news? And just when you think the news can't get worse, it does. But Paul says he's not given us a spirit of fear. So that clearly isn't from him. The world generates fear. But he's given us a spirit of power and of love. And of a sound mind. But Paul wasn't writing just to individual Christians. He wasn't just writing like to Timothy by himself. No, the letter is addressed to the saints who are at Ephesus. The gathering at Ephesus. The assembly at Ephesus. The congregation in Ephesus. He's writing to them collectively, and he's saying to them collectively, I want your eyes opened. I am praying that God will enlighten you so that you will know what is the power, his exceeding great power, the power that is in the gathering, the power that he has for us as his people. And when you start to think about it and you start to meditate on it, suddenly it becomes like amazing to consider what this power is because we read that he has given us a new life. He has raised us from the dead, that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. 
But even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. And then Jesus promised us that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he said, I am there in their midst. We could talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We could talk about the power of the word of God, for it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We could talk about the power of the gospel. As Paul would write to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Do you see how much power is invested in the church? Do you see how much power he's given us? The power of a new life, the power of his presence, the power of his word, the power of his spirit, the power of the message. And then the power of praying. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. We're just surrounded by power. It's all around us. It's in us. It's in our hands. It's in our hearts. So something else is going on. It's like it's like Satan is throwing a hood over our eyes. He's stuffed our ears. He's blinded us to this because he understands that like we were singing this morning, the church victorious will someday be the church at rest. But we don't often feel like the church victorious. We don't feel like that personally. And we don't certainly feel like it collectively. But what we have is this power. And so I want to just take a few moments and just think about this one aspect of the gathering, of the congregation. And that is the power of his presence. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Just just think about that for just a moment. And we're going to talk about that for just a moment. The power of his presence, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Now, I want you to observe one thing first. I want you to understand the gathering. I want you to look at the gathering. Where two or three. Notice he didn't say not two or three thousand. Not two or three hundred. Not two or three dozen. He said two or three. You know, a lot of things that has captured evangelical Christianity in America and why we're so discouraged is because we bought the lie that Satan has sold the church. And that is that what matters most is the size of your building, how many bodies are in the pews, and how many bucks are in the bank. That is evangelical America. The size of your building, the bodies in the seats, and the bucks in the bank. And what's happened is, is that when any one of those three things gets touched, people are discouraged. Because what they see then is there's not enough bodies, there's not enough bucks, and where's the building? 
But the reality is that Jesus never made the center of his church a physical building. And he never was concerned with the number of people in the sense that it would only work if there were thousands. And he always was interested in the one or the two. And he always had a distrust of the masses. You can read it in John. Jesus did not commit himself to the masses because he knew what was in the heart of men. And so when we start to talk about the power, the first thing we got to repent of is we got to repent of the attitude that we're not big enough. We're not big enough to make a difference. We're not large enough to have an impact. Because where Jesus says, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Notice that the second thing he says is where two or three are gathered, not separated, not dispersed. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting in the sense that there is here a sense in which this is about us being together. Together collectively. It doesn't have to be hundreds. It doesn't have to be thousands. It can be just two or three. But the fact is, is that this is the second thing we have to be repenting of. It's not the size that matters. and It's not up to me by myself. And notice, it's where two or three are gathered together. You know, you can walk down the street in Manhattan on in Times Square, and there's a whole lot more people than two or three. They're together, but they're not gathered together. They're all together, but they're not gathered together. They all have their own agendas, their own destinations, their own ideas of what they're doing. They may be for a moment in the same place, but they don't share unity. And so when Jesus is saying to us, where two or three are gathered together, there is a a unity of purpose They're gathering together, and there's something that unites them together. There's something that calls them together. That's what ecclesia means. The word that's translated church, which, by the way, is a terrible translation of that word, is actually the gathering, the congregation. The the word there is those who have been called out from their homes. The ecclesia are those who've been called out from their homes to gather in a public place. That what we are gathered to, he says, who are gathered together, what? In my name. Now, I know among the brethren assemblies that we use that as sort of our motto. We gather in his name. And what that has often meant is what it doesn't mean. In other words, we don't label ourselves by anything else, which is very positive, by the way. You know, we're not going to call ourselves anything but Christian. But in the purest identity that we should have, it means it doesn't really matter what label you give yourself if you know Jesus as your Savior. 
doesn't matter whether you call yourself Presbyterian or Anglican or Baptist or Methodist. In other words, those things are extraneous to our identity. But gathering in his name means more than just what label we give ourselves or what label we don't give ourselves. Came across this quote. I think this is it. This guy says it. We gather to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our attraction and our resource. We own no other name than his. We find our attraction in him, our authority from him. We focus our attention on him and all of our activity is channeled to him. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's what it means to gather in his name. It means that what we gather to is not a building. It's not a building. Buildings are useful. They're tools. But we don't gather to a building. We don't gather to a cause, although there is a cause associated with Christ. But that's not what we're gathered to. We are gathered to him. He is our attraction. He's our resource. He's our authority. And he deserves all of our attention. And notice where two or three are gathered together in his name. He says, I am there. Just let that sink in for a moment. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Who is he? Who is in our midst. The prophet wrote, cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Who is here in our midst? Who is he? Is he not the shepherd? Is he not the master? Is he not the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Amen and the Almighty, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Counselor, the Keeper, the Prince of Peace, the Great I Am, the Door, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Word made flesh, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Resurrection, the Friend of Sinners, the Judge of all the Earth, the creator and sustainer, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Who is he who is in our midst? Who else do we really need? This is the one who said, I will be there 
in their midst. You see what Satan does? He takes our eyes off of what we have. And he persuades us that the things we don't have are actually the things that make the difference. Because one, he knows the things that we think that we don't have that will make the difference in the end don't make the difference. And the things that we do have that we already possess make all the difference in the world. And you see the power of his presence is communicated to us through his Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. It had to sound like like some kind of crazy paradox to the disciples. I mean, they can understand that here they were gathered together and he's there right in the midst of them. But how in the future could he be in multiple places at multiple times when two or three gathered together? And of course, as the church has become a worldwide phenomenon, beginning in, in all of the, of Asia and sweeping across the entire globe as this day has progressed, two or three have gathered together around the planet. And in every one of those locations, he has promised if they've gathered in his name, he is there in their midst. Well, obviously he's not physically present. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, but he is there through his Holy Spirit. That is why he said, it is better for me to depart so that the Father will send the Comforter, the other advocate who will be with you, and he will be in you because where he is, I am. And right now, I can only be in one physical place at a time. But when the Spirit comes, I will be with you. I will keep that promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in their midst. And the Holy Spirit in us and through us, connects us to Jesus. The problem is, it's like we need to plug the computer into the wall. Right? You call tech. My computer's not turning on. First question they ask, is it plugged in? Is it plugged in? Oh, sorry. The problem with us is that we're not plugged in. The problem is, is that I'll speak for myself. I lack faith. And it's not that I lack faith as much as I place my faith in other things. My own understanding. God says, don't do that. My own wisdom, God says, don't do that. My own strength, God says, don't do that. My own ideas, God says, don't do that. Which is why we're called upon to continually have our minds renewed. How we're called upon to continually be repenting, which means literally a change of mind. In other words, we're always thinking bad ways. We're always thinking wrong thoughts. 
is there's always processes going on in our heads that are not biblical, which is why we're supposed to saturate our minds with the scriptures, why we're supposed to read the Bible every day, why we're supposed to meditate and memorize and hide his word in his heart and his word in our hearts. Because left to our own devices, we're going to think wrong, we're going to believe wrong, and therefore we're going to act wrong. And God is calling us to recognize his power toward us. Which means we need to start to pray. I mean, pray. Pray for the things we're praying for, but pray also for the things that we haven't thought to pray for. Lord, give us a vision. We don't know what we're doing. And we admit it. We look around and we feel powerless. Show us the power. We don't understand the world we live in. Help us to see it through your eyes. One author wrote, to run an organization needs no God. Man can supply the energy, the enterprise, the enthusiasm for things human. The real work of a church depends upon the power of the spirit. The presence of the spirit is vital and central to the work of the church. Nothing else avails. Apart from him, wisdom becomes folly and strength weakness. The church is called to be a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Only spiritual people can be its living stones and only spirit filled its priests. Scholarship is blind to spiritual truth till he reveals. Worship is idolatry till he inspires. Preaching is powerless if it not be a demonstration of his power. Prayer is vain unless he energizes. Human resources of learning and organization, wealth and enthusiasm, reform and philanthropy are worse than useless if there be no Holy Ghost in them. The church always fails at the point of self-confidence. When the church is run on the same lines as a circus, there may be crowds, but there is no Shekinah. That is why prayer is the test of faith and the secret of power. The spirit of God travails in the prayer life of the souls. Miracles are the direct work of his power. and Without miracles, the church cannot live. The carnal can argue, but it is the spirit that convicts. Education can civilize, but it's being born of the spirit that saves. The energy of the flesh can run bazaars, organize amusements, and raise millions, but it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes a temple of the living God. The root trouble of the present distress is that the church has more faith in the world and the flesh than in the Holy Spirit. And things will get no better till we get back to his realized presence and power. The breath of the four winds would turn death into life and dry bones into mighty armies. But it only comes by prayer. And I stand here before you this morning because three ladies prayed for their children about 45 years ago. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come into your presence. And Father, we confess that so often we hear a message and it may move us, it may speak to us, but then Five minutes after we walk out the door, it's like the seed is stolen from us. So we would ask, Lord, that the soil of our hearts would be more receptive 
that the seed would sink deeper, that Satan wouldn't snatch it away. And that when persecution or trouble comes, that it would be rooted so that it might bear fruit. Lord, send your spirit to work in our hearts in a way that we've longed to see, but are so unwilling to believe. We ask, Lord, that as we go forward into this week, that we might make small steps in the obedience, repenting of those thoughts or attitudes that we begin to recognize from your spirit that are contrary to your will. Help us to read your word. Help us to meditate in it. And even more, help us to pray. For it's where we exercise our faith. And so, Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we might know what is the hope of your calling, that we might know the exceeding riches of the glorious inheritance in Christ and what is that great power you have toward us who believe. We ask this for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the honor of your name. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.